What's up, Mill Sunday School? Are you guys out there? Okay, I'm just making sure. All right, we this month is called Bible Conundrums. Some of you have been coming up to me asking me what a conundrum is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you will find that out all this month. Turn into your Bibles to 2 Tim, short for 2 Timothy 3.14. And we're going to le- read uh, three verses, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to talk about Bible conundrums. What a great day, don't you think? It's supposed to snow outside today. Can you believe that trash? I was like, what? No, get out of here. It's May. It's not going to snow. 2 Timothy 3.14. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, the great evangelist, the writer of most of the New Testament, the man, the myth, Paul the Apostle, to his son in God, his son in Christ. Um, He potentially led Timothy to the Lord and just raised him up, a mentor, mentoree relationship. And these are words from Paul to Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3.14. Make sure you're in 2 Timothy, not 1. You'll be really confused. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convicted of, because you know these from whom you have learned it. 15 says, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that cool how from infancy he's known the Holy Scriptures? which were able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says something amazing about Scripture. Verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Amen? Amen. That's so cool. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that every person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes. Let's pray. God, we just we ask that you will be present here this morning as the Mill Sunday School, as we've gathered here to learn more about your word, about your truth, God. We're digging in. We want more here this morning. God, we say open our hearts, open our minds to your word, your God-breathed spiritual words that are on the pages of our Bible. God, would you open that up to us in a new and in a fresh way this morning, God. And we love you, and we praise you, and everyone said, amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's called Bible Conundrums, and I'm still not sure what a conundrum is. It's puzzles, mysteries, hard passages of the Bible, passages that you look at, and there's a bunch of Christians that say, this is the interpretation. And then a bunch of Christians on the other side, looking at the exact same verse, that say, no, this is the correct interpretation. And they'll argue and disagree over those kind of passages. We're going to look at some of those kinds of things this month. Dare I say that we're going to look at some things that look like inconsistencies within different Bible passages. Dare I say that we're going to look at some things that look like small errors within the passages of the Bible. Dare I say that we're going to look at things that are just plain weird in the Bible and things that are just really confusing. And so we're going to be looking at those things all this month But ladies and gentlemen, that is not the focus. The focus is how cool, how great, how amazing, how God-breathed this book is right here. And so we're going to be looking at these, these problem passages, these conundrums, if you will, and saying these conundrums are ways that we can look at the Bible and see God in his greatness. 
through these random passages. So it's going to be a fun month, yes or no. You better believe it's going to be a fun month. It's the month of May. It's going to snow today. It's going to be crazy. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, um, on every table, there is some uh, cue cards, blank cue cards. You really only need one per table. And you could talk with your little buddies about um, what, what I think. I want you to write down things that someone may have asked you sometime or things that you've just heard that are Bible conundrums, hard passages that you wish someone would talk about sometime. And so if we all write down one or a couple as a table, then we'll have a whole bunch, a list of things that throughout this month we are going to talk about. It's not like going to be like Q&A where we all hand them in now and I just off the top of my head answer them all because I'm not as cool as Pastor Aaron Stern. I can't do that. I don't know who could. He's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but So I'm going to go, I'm going to research, I'm going to study some of these things and, and bring out the best I possibly can, the best answers that I can to glorify God with some of the questions that you write down. You know, there's this evangelist type dude. He's, he's actually got a pretty creative ministry. He goes to carnivals and fairs and he, he sets up his booth and it says, ask me any question about God. And then on the fine print says, stump the Bible thumper. And so you, you go up to the booth, you pay the guy some money, like a dollar or something, and then you ask him a question, and he gives you the answer because he knows everything. He's the Bible um, answer man. I think that's something else, though. He's like, a, he's like the Bible dude. He knows everything, supposedly. And it's his ministry. I'm sure he's not doing it for money. He's doing it because people have questions about God. People have questions about the Bible. And so they go up to him, and, and they pay him money, and they think that they're going to get something back, and he just delivers the message of truth to them. Pretty cool, don't you think? I think it's pretty cool. And so take a minute, uh, maybe maybe two minutes, two 60-second minutes, and write down, think with your buddies, some Bible conundrums that you might want answered. The more specific you can get, the better. Like if you actually have the Bible verse, that's cool. If you don't, that's okay. get some good stuff? Get some real good stuff? Like, yeah, oh yeah. Could a couple people go around and collect? I guess you're still kind of writing, huh? Okay, keep writing, keep writing. I'll give you another minute, and then maybe we'll turn them in at the end of the class in case you think of one as we're going. That'd be fun, huh? I want you to have fun, right? That's why I keep asking you if that's fun. So I really want you to have fun in Sunday school.
All right, just out of curiosity, what are some things that you wrote down? We're not going to answer them right now, but just to, just to get excited about it, what are some things you wrote down? Anybody? Yes? If God doesn't mess with free will, how, why or how? Why or how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Do you remember that passage in the New Testament? Old, Old Testament? But then it's, it's, it's referred to in the New Testament that, Pharaoh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What else? Anybody else? Any, yes, Mr. Chris Herndon? What is an interpretation of tongues and is it ever used? Ooh, everybody say, ooh, good one. What, maybe one more. Anybody? You all wrote stuff down. I saw you. Don't be shy. Yes, Mr. Bruce? Why would a loving God raise people up to destroy them? Everybody say, ooh, that's a good one. All right, we will get to problems like these, Bible conundrums, ideas within Scripture, and we'll also look specifically at different Scriptures to talk about the Bible conundrums. Sound fun? You guys are still working too, huh? You're like, man, look at that table. They're like listing stuff over there. I don't even know what's going on. All right, my question for you is, what is so great about the Bible? Everybody say, what is so great about the Bible? I'm going to answer it for you. Are you ready? What, what are you doing over there? What is so great about the Bible? Here it is. I went out to lunch uh, uh, maybe a couple, maybe almost a month ago with an atheist uh, friend of mine. He's actually a friend of a friend. He, they're both students. One of them, uh, the atheist guy, came to this Christian friend and said, hey, would it be cool if I came to New Life Church? And then would it be cool if afterwards I was able to talk to a pastor? And, um, and, and he, was, he said if it was possible for us to have a little debate. And, and so my friend, the Christian dude of the atheist, um, wrote me an email saying, hey, I got this guy that wants to come to church and then talk to a pastor. And I said, oh, that'd be sweet. Let's do it. You know, why not? Come to realize that, that he's, he wants to come to New Life Church. Ex- extremely respectful. Don't get the wrong idea. That he came just to learn, to see how we did things here at New Life Church. And then he wanted to go out to lunch or go somewhere and have a debate, have a conversation, voice his views of atheism, and then I would voice my views of Christianity. And since my friend knew that I'm, I'm working on my doctorate, I got my master's degree in theology, that I might be a good guy to talk to about uh, philosophies of why we believe. And so we went out to lunch. Of course, we went to Payway. Of course, I had the Kung Pao shrimp. We're sitting there. We're having our conversation. And uh, whenever I'm in a debate with a non-Christian, I've been burned a few times. I guess I've I've just been in situations where it kind of gets, we argue back and forth, and we go, la, 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 and then, and then we set one person or they both start getting a little mad or frustrated, and it ends up, just be, you walk away thinking, man, I'm kind of dumb. I just kind of treated that guy bad, and we kind of got mad at each other, and that's not what I want to be known for. So nowadays, whenever I'm debating or talking with a non-Christian or a person uh, of a different viewpoint, I always think that I win the debate based upon whether this person knows that I love him and respect him and care for him. I, even if he figuratively, philosophically hangs me up upside down and beats me, I will still consider myself 
having won the debate if he feels respected and cared for and loved by the love of Christ in me. And so that's what we start. Isn't that cool? And so we're having lunch. I'm eating my Kung Pao shrimp. We're talking, kind of going back and forth. And, and we've, I finally, we, for some reason, the debate started with uh, stem cell research, out of all things that, that we could start talking about. We started with there, and I said, well, let's, let's try to find a foundational level where we disagree. Instead of talking about um, just getting into rabbit trails, let's find a foundational level by which we, we start disagreeing with each other. He said, okay, let's do that. He said, well, what's, what, where do you pull truth from? And he said, Here's, if there's truth, and we first started talking about absolute truth. And I said, do you think truth is absolute? And he actually said, yeah, I do. I believe there's some things, he said, and I, I would agree that there's some things on this earth that are absolutely true no matter what. And so, and so we didn't have to begin with debating absolute truth. He said, I believe in absolute truth. And I said, I agree. I believe in absolute truth. And I said, I hold the Bible as the best way to get to truth. And he said, well, that's where we disagree. Because he said, well, I think the best way of getting to truth isn't an ancient book. And he said, there might be truths in the Bible. There might be true stuff that's there. But he said, I believe that what's the best way to get to truth is through logic and science and experiments and so on and so forth. And I said, well, that's definitely a way of getting to truth. But I would disagree with you on the foundational level that the Bible is the best way of getting to truth. And so at least we had, at, at the, towards the end of the conversation, we had something that we foundationally built our foundation on. He said, and I kind of questioned him and, and asked him, but you would say that you're the measure. The phil philosophical Latin term is uh, man is the measure. There's some Latin term. I forget. I should know that. I'm really smart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, man is the measure. So I said, if you believe that man is the measure, you believe that you can think through things, that you can know, that your own eyes can observe what is true, and you could decide what is true. And I said, I disagree with that on a philosophical level because I believe we're created beings, and I believe our creator tells us what is true, and it's his wisdom, and his ways are above our ways, and there is something that made us, and we are finite. He is infinite. We are small. He is big. He knows all everything. He's um, omniscient, omniscient. He knows everything. We don't know everything. And so at least we had, at the end of the conversation, we were both very respectful, and we both uh, just, just had a good conversation about it. No one was yelling at anybody. No one was getting Kung Pao shrimp tossed in their eyes. We were just having a good time, a good conversation, and we realized that we disagreed on wh what the best way of getting to truth is. And I said that the Bible is the best way of, of knowing truth. And at the bottom, um, we would say that there, there's logic down here. And that the, what if, if logic disagrees with the Bible, um, we would have to look at that. We'd look at it again and again and think about it, think through it. But we would ultimately say that the Bible is true. On the issue of, um, I'm not talking about six-day versus a literal creation or evolutionistic creation, but on the issue of creation, he would say, well, you don't, we don't need a God because in a test tube we can put some amoebas together and they could form lengths of sugars and that could possibly lead to life. And he said there's no need to believe in a God because we could make a partial life in a test tube. And I said, well, that's silly because the Bible says that God is a creator. And, and just think about it. You came out of a, an amoeba kind of thing with no influence from a divine thing that's 
guiding his way through creation? And he would say, yeah, we don't need to believe in God. And I said, well, I disagree. We need to believe because the Bible says so. And so if I'm holding the Bible, and as Christians, we hold this book above anything else, and if someone comes up to you and says, hey, I had a dream, and this angel told me something, and it contradicts the Bible, what would you tell the person, to go with the dream or to go with the Bible? Yeah, you'd say, well, bro, you probably just had a weird dream. It might have been the pizza you ate, and you had a weird dream. Don't believe the dream. The Bible is what is true. So I'm going to give you, in this right now, I'm going to list for you six things of why we choose the Bible over um, logic, why we choose the Bible over experiences, and why we choose the Bible over what people say. Peeps. If someone came in here and said, um, hey, there's a car, it's a white car outside with their lights on, would anyone doubt that person? No, they're, they're telling truth. They're coming in here saying that somebody's got their lights on, trying to protect them from a battery that goes dead. And so we could learn from people, from other people's experiences, from other people's testimony, the truth that has happened or will happen. We can learn from people. We can learn from our own experiences. We can learn from logic. But at the top, as Christians, we would say the best way to know the truth on this earth is, in fact, from the Bible. Yes or no? Sweet. Okay, so we've, re we've reached the foundational point where we can start talking. So I'm going to give you six reasons why we as Christians choose the Bible. And I could have gone over these six reasons uh, with the gentleman that I had my Kung Pao shrimp with, um, the, the atheist guy, but we kind of started talking about other things. He wasn't really too interested in talking about the Bible. Um, but I could have listed, he really didn't ask me why the Bible, why do you believe in the Bible above logic and science? He just kind of said, okay, that's where we disagree, and we went on. But these are not these six reasons, but they're six great reasons why the Bible should be held as the best resource that we have as Christians. I'm going to erase this and then put down the numbers one through six and start talking about that. Does that sound like fun? Basically, I'm going to prove to you why the Bible is our holy book, why we call it the Word of God, why we call it um, the Holy Bible, why we call it Scripture, five and six. Number one is, if you're writing these down, write down, um, I guess the best term is a spiritual testimony. Testimony. And this is a good reason. I don't think it's the best reason. But it's a really good reason, and I think other religions might have this reason for their particular beliefs. So you can't just say that this is the only reason why uh, the Bible's so great. But don't you believe, if you, if you spend some time reading the Bible and looking at passages, that there's this inner spiritual testimony inside of you, this burning of your heart that says, yes, these words are true. God is speaking to me now. This is new and fresh and, and just great. I don't know how many times I've read through, for instance, the book of Corinthians. That's my favorite Bible book of all time. But every single time I read it, it seems to speak something new to me. It's not like I forgot what it said. It's like it speaks something new to me because they're spiritual principles. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that from the Bible. Like, man, it's really speaking to my heart, to my mind. This is true. God's using it to speak to me. And I think that's a legitimate reason. You could tell someone, well, the Bible's great, the Bible's true, because it speaks to you and it speaks to me at, at, where, at where we are. Even though it's an ancient book, it's a really old book, it speaks spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth 
is God-breathed, like we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. And so Aaron Stern talks about it as a jack-in-the-box. Have you ever heard him talk about that, the jack-in-the-box idea? Some of you probably have. He says that reading the scripture is sometimes like playing with a jack-in-the-box. You know what a jack-in-the-box is, right? I, think, I don't even think they sell them anymore because they're dangerous toys. <laughs> My grandma had one when I was a kid, and it was like this big, and the spring on it was like an aviation, like intense industrial spring. And it, was, it sat about this high, and when the jack came out of the box, it was like this high. And so I couldn't even, as a kid, I couldn't even get it back in. My dad had to help me push it back in and then like hold it and then clamp the box down. And as I'm doing the thing, you better make sure that your chin isn't anywhere near the box. I don't know why they sold this toy. I mean, just imagine the lawsuits today if this toy was at Walmart for all the kids to buy. But you would, you'd, you'd, you'd turn it. How many of you ever play with the Jack in the Box? Uh, m- m- most of us have. It's a fun toy. You start playing with it. And then at, at some random point, I don't know the mystery of how this Jack Box works, but whenever you least expect it, it pops out and it scares the heck out of you. <laughs> As a kid, you're like, I'm never going to touch that again. But the Bible... Um, the Bible doesn't pop out and scare us, but sometimes we're, we're just reading along. And there, I mean, to be honest with you, there's a lot of boring passages in the Bible. And when I mean boring, I mean like lists of names, boring. And, and so you're just reading along. You're just, you just keep on keeping on. You're in the discipline of just keep spinning that little wheel until sometime, some, maybe when you least expect it, maybe when you're expecting it, God, boom, something just hits you, and you're like, wow, this is amazing. But honestly, when I'm reading the Bible, most of my time is spent turning the wheel, and then the jack-in-the-box pops out at me. Is that a cool analogy? It's Aaron Stern's analogy, and I just loved it from the first time I ever heard it. I thought, man, that is really what the Bible's like. You read it, and you read it, and sometimes there's nothing in there. Sometimes you do your devo, you do your daily morning, morning devo if you do that, and you wake up early. You read the Bible, and you're like, man, I got nothing out of that. But some days, you're reading along, and something just pops out to you, and you're in tears, and you're like, wow, God just spoke to me. That's amazing. And that's what we read the Bible for, for those times, and just to get into the discipline. So number one is a spiritual testimony. And uh, we don't hold all the way to the Bible on this, but we do say it's a definite reason why we believe the Bible is so cool. Number two, um, that there's a complete story in the Bible complete story. And what I mean by this is, is something that you probably couldn't guess at, but uh, it's, it's in this book. How many of you have ever, ever seen Josh McDowell's uh, a New Evidence or The Evidence That Demands a Verdict? How many? Raise your hand if you've seen it, just out of curiosity. Oh, lots of you have. It's not a fun book to, to read, like sit down and read. It's more of a, um, a, a textbook. It reads like an encyclopedia. And um, he... And right at the very beginning, he gives some reasons why the Bible is so unique, why the Bible has to be the word of God. And he gives an argument about the authors, all of the authors of the Bible making this one complete story throughout the Bible. He says that it's written over a 1,500-year span, lots of different years. It's written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, so on and so forth. 
Um, he says that it's been written in different places, in the wilderness, in a jungle, in a jail, while traveling, in exile, so on and so forth. It's been written at different times, times of war, times of peace, times of prosperity. It's been written in times of different moods, times of joy, sadness, despair, confusion, doubt. It's, it was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek. There's a, the passage of Daniel that's written in Aramaic. Um, it's written in a variety of literary styles, including poetry, songs, romance, uh, memoir, satire, biography. The Bible addresses hundreds of controversial topics. And here's the main point. If we, get, if we went outside and gathered 44-plus people living today in 2007 from all walks of life, you know, we get some janitors, we get uh, some lawyers, some doctors, um, drivers, whatever. We just get some people and say, why don't you write some books about God? Why don't you write about some controversial subjects about ethics and life and what the meaning of life is? What do you think the kind of results that we would get, that we would have? We did all, we get 44 plus different answers, totally different. The Bible, he says, and let me read the words exact, is that in spite of its diversity, the Bible presents a single unfolding story, God's redemption of human beings. That to me is amazing, that this book is a really big book. It's written over at least 1,500 years from random people all over the three known continents at that time. And despite that fact, there is one continual story in this book. It's not like one passage says, let's worship all the gods together and how they war over us and how we need to be nice and, and they'll, they'll give us fertility. And then another passage says, we need to worship the one true God. Throughout the Bible, it says we need to worship the one true God and how Jesus came to, to send his son. Um, Jesus came to, to bring us life and truth and how God redeemed us from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. It's a single story. Isn't that sweet? Turn to your neighbor and say, that's so sweet. Because it is. That's a, a complete story idea. The number three is who would die for a lie? And then it rhymes. Wait, who would? i got to be able to spell would. Die for a lie? Question mark. I remember when I was a kid, I had this sweet bicycle when I was like six or seven. I was trying to figure it out last night. I had this sweet black huffy bike and uh, <laughs> no training wheels, by the way. I never learned with training wheels. Some of you, probably all of you learned with training wheels. Never once had them. That's why I'm so cool. And so uh, I was riding my bike with my friend named Mike. <coughs> and Mike had a, a hand-me-down bike, which wouldn't be so bad if, his, if he had an older brother. But he didn't have an older brother. <laughs> his bike was, uh, it wasn't pink, but it was yellow with little flowers on it. And, then, and for some reason, the biggest difference was that, I don't even know why they do this, but the, the, the bar of the bike, like on a boy's bike, is straight. A girl's bike goes down. And for some reason, we just we would constantly make fun of him for this fact. But anyways, me and Mike were riding along through the neighborhood, and he pulls off into the grass and lays his girl bike down and then picks up a red bike, brand new red huffy bike, even sweeter than mine, picks it up and starts riding. And he says, this is my bike. And I was like, all right. And as a kid, you don't really, you're just like, okay, let's, let's, well, let's continue our ride. So we kept on riding, and it wasn't until later that night when we were having dinner as a family, me, 
my mom and dad and my little bro uh, having dinner, and uh, this family comes to the door with Mike's girl bike and says, we saw your son playing uh, around our yard. Do you know anything about this girl bike sitting here and our son's stolen red bike? And I was just like, oh, gosh. I realized what happened. Uh, it just came to me. And as a kid, I, it was hard to figure out at the time, but um, it was clear that Mike lied. He just parked his bike and picked up another bike <laughs> and started riding. But my dad sat me down and said, Joe, I want we've got to get to the bottom of this. You're going to tell me what happened, or I'm going to ground you from your bike. I'm going to ground you from TV. At that time, it was G.I. Joe. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, G.I. Joe, I'm going to ground you from even going outside if you don't tell me the truth of why this bike is missing. And so I told my dad, well, I just, you know, you just sing like a bird when you're, you know, you don't want to get grounded from G.I. Joe or grounded at all. And so I said, well, Mike just parked his girl bike in that yard and picked up the red bike. And so I wasn't willing, even though me and Mike were friends, I was not willing to uh, lie or to get in trouble for his lie. And follow me here. There's, there's disciples in the New Testament. Jesus has 12 disciples, right? And at the time of his death, at the time when he's brought into jail, Jesus, all of the 12 disciples, where are they at? They're running, they run away. They're scared. They hide. There's the story of Peter that denies Christ three times. So Christ dies on the cross, is set in a grave, and then he's resurrected and appears to all the 12 disciples. Not the original. Judas wasn't there. Um, but he appears to the disciples, and then they really, really, really believe. And they it, they went from being scared and scattered and, and denying Christ to every single one of them, except for Judas, who we know what happened to Judas, uh, that, that betrayed Christ and then committed suicide. And except for John the Beloved, we think that he just died of natural death, but he died in uh, exile and prison on the island of Patmos. That Andrew died by crucifixion. Matthew died by the sword. James, died by, James, son of Alphaeus, died by crucifixion. Philip, crucifixion. Simon, crucifixion. Thaddeus, killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death. Thomas, uh, thrust with a spear. Bartholomew, crucified. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, died by the sword. And Peter, crucified. And so all these disciples went from being scared and, and separated to seeing Jesus in the resurrected form and saying, I'm not just denying Christ. I'm not going to deny him. I am willing to die in a brutal matter for truth. Because who would die for a lie? These people that wrote the New Testament were willing to die for something that they totally believed was 100% true. Betsy? Yeah, you're allowed to ask questions in the middle of Sunday school. That's true. And so if that was our only reason for why we believed in the Bible, it wouldn't hold up. But it's still a valid point that these men were scared, that they denied Christ, and then something happened. Something happened to change their particular life to being, able, being willy, willing to die for something that they believed was true. And so people today are willing to die for things that are true that may not be true. This is a point that just says, they believed that it was true. Peter, writing some of the books of the New Testament, believed that it's true. But that is a good point. People do die all the time for things that they think are true, but they're not. And so this is just one of the six reasons who would die for a lie.
Are you ready for number four? I think you are. Number four, um, I like this one a lot. I'm just going to put historical accuracy. I heard a, a quote uh, as I was reading and, and preparing for this that not one archaeological find contradicts the Bible. Not one archaeological find contradicts the Bible. Real places in the Bible like Jerusalem. Real places in the Bible like Ephesus. Real things happening in the book of Acts, like them going to a huge amphitheater in Ephesus. You could go there today and see the ruins of some of these places. And not to say that everything in the Bible is proved by archaeology, but to say that finds that, that I've heard it say, even my uh, sixth grade secular teacher in uh, geography said that the Bible's pretty accurate. In fact, an archaeologist, she jokingly said that an archaeologist will go out with one hand with a shovel and one hand with the Bible if they're going to the, the, the Middle East. I just thought that was funny as a kid. I wasn't a Christian at that, at that point. But um, if you compare the Bible to another book, and just, I know we, we pick on the Mormons a lot, but if you compare the Bible to the Book of Mormon for just a second, you will realize that the Book of Mormon is written about a supposed um, generation of, of the lost tribe of Israel living here in the United States, what is today the Americas, uh, Central, North America, and um, living like right in like upstate New York, right where Joseph Smith found the gold plates. And ladies and gentlemen, there's no archaeological evidence for the things in the Book of Mormon to be true. The, the Book of Mormon talks about temples and huge cities and buildings and so on and so forth that should be in upstate New York and all around the eastern, the northeastern seaboard. Is there those kinds of things? Is there ruins of these ancient temples and things like that? Not really. I mean, the, the people that lived there before us uh, were Indians, and they were very low impact on the earth, and they lived in small tribes. And so versus the Bible, the Bible, you can actually go today to Jerusalem, can't you? You can go today and see the ruins of the temple that's talked about in the Bible. There's not a temple there, but at least there's a wall that says, yeah, there was a temple here. And so there's some amount of historical accuracy within the Bible. Number five, manuscript accuracy. Manuscript accuracy. That says manuscript and then accuracy again. Manuscript accuracy. Have you ever played the telephone game? It's a fun game. For some reason, when I was in third grade, we had music class. And I think that, I don't, as a kid, you're, n you're often not sure what's really going on. But I think the teacher that taught music didn't know anything about music. She was just like a sub for the whole year or something. So in third grade, every single time we had music class, we played the telephone game. <laughs> and it was the funnest class I've ever been in. Um, besides, of course, no Sunday school. And so we're in uh, music class playing the telephone game. And, you know, you sit around in a big circle if you've never played. One person will, will think of a statement like a monkey in a tree ate two bananas. And so that's their statement. They don't say it out loud, but they start whispering it. And it goes around the entire circle. And once it gets back to the original person, to the person that's sitting next to the original person, the original person says what it is, says what the statement is, a monkey on the tree ate two bananas, and then this person says what they heard, the last person along the line to hear 
uh, what they hear. And usually it's way different. And there's two things happening when you play the telephone game. One is the errors that are created because you can't hear what's actually being said because you're being whispered. And so you just fill in those errors with something. And, and you, you usually the end gets cut off or the beginning gets cut off. It's hard to remember. So there's errors. And the other thing that happens is little kids like me like to just, they hear it correctly, but then they change it just to be funny. And so the, the monkey that ate two bananas in the tree, it'll come all the way around. And so the last kid will read, a monkey peed on two people eating bananas. And the whole, the class will just erupt. And oh my gosh, that's so funny. It's hilarious. And, and so those two things happening, people wanting to make the story better and, pe and people actually just making errors as they're trying their hardest to deliver the message. And so some people have said, well, the Bible is just exaggerations. And, and so they, they would say, well, come on, think about it. What's more true, that, G that a man really rose from the dead or that somebody got the story wrong or somebody exaggerated the story? Come on, think about it. And, and, and so you say, well, so you're, you're and you kind of tell them about the telephone game. You're saying that the story's been exaggerated over, over time or changed over time or an error over time. But here is some things, some facts about the manuscripts that we have of the original, the New Testament, for instance. And we have to compare it with something else. And this, once again, comes out of Josh McDowell's The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, you could pick this book up at any Christian bookstore and read it. Um, it's actually quite fun to have as a uh, reference. And it says that the book that we have, the best resources, the manuscripts, is called The Iliad. Have you ever read The Iliad? Like in high school, you probably had to read, read excerpts of it. It's by Homer. It was written a long time ago. We have the most manuscripts of that writing than any other book but the Bible. We have 643 manuscripts of that book. That means to compare it to the telephone game, we have 600 people, 643 people playing the telephone game. And so we could look at each one of those people, each one of those 600 people playing the telephone game. But it's not really like the telephone game that it gets, I mean, if you had 600 people playing, it would be worse off, right? These are 600 paper manuscripts that you could actually see, not being whispered. And so that's a lot of manuscripts. The time that we have from the original being written and the first manuscript is 400 years. 400 years between the first, when it was originally written, and the first manuscript that we have, um, that we still have today. And so that, that is the best example, other than the Bible, of an ancient writing that we have of the manuscripts and the original writing being so close together and having so many of them. Some of these other ones, like uh, Pl Pliny uh, Secundus, some of you probably know what that is. We have seven manuscripts, and the time between the original and the first manuscript that we have is 750 years. Now the Bible, to compare it to those two things, we just said that the Iliad had 643. Do you know how many manuscripts we have of just the New Testament? 24,970. That's a lot. That's a whole lot of manuscripts. We also, if you look at, okay, when, remember the Iliad, we have this, this span of 400 years between the time the original was made and then the time that we have the manuscript. You know what we have for the New Testament? We have only 50 years. That's less than one lifetime of, away of the original, when the original was written, and then when we started getting some of these manuscripts. So there just wasn't enough time for, for all these people to, to have their own stories. Let's just say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for them 
to, for, the, for the people, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who actually saw Jesus and, and wrote about him, for people to hear that story and then exaggerate that story. It's only 50 years, and we have 24,000 manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. And so you just have to think, wow, that's really not enough time for the telephone game effect to work. Isn't that cool? Yes, that's pretty cool. We got we got to move. I see some hands out there. I'm sorry. We gotta we gotta do number six, and then I want to talk about um, one example of a of a um, a Bible conundrum. So number six is prophecies that are fulfilled by Christ. Prophecies of Christ. Uh, the prophecies of Christ. And this one, to me, it's the coolest one. You may think that some of these other ones are cooler. That's okay with you. Um, that's okay with me if you think that. But this one is the coolest to me. Did you know that there are lots of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah? And so if you, if you look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's about right here in the book of Matthew, you'll see that the Old Testament is this section, the New Testament is this section, Usually people say that there's about 300 or so years between the Old Testament and the New Testament being written. That the Old Testament is, in fact, a lot older than the New Testament by at least some, some passages a thousand years. And so in 700 B.C., the, the author Micah in uh, Micah 5.2, you can put that up on the board if you want. It talks about the, how the coming Messiah will be born in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Uh, Pathroom, that's like the area. Bethlehem, you, you're small, but out of you will come a ruler of Israel whose origins are from ancient times. It goes on to say that the, basically we believe it talking about um, Christ. The coming of Christ will be born in Bethlehem. That the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so what, what this argument is going to be, it's going gonna, it's gonna to say that out of all the cities in the world, millions of cities in the world, the Christ has to come from Bethlehem. There's another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14, that says that the Christ would be born of a virgin, that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin. And so you take all the people that have ever been born in Bethlehem, and you just take, take it for what it's worth. If a woman said that she, she was a virgin, <laughs> even though she had a baby, you just include that and say, okay, all the women in, Be in Bethlehem that had a baby, um, if you claim that you're a virgin, let's put you in a group. And then in Micah 3:1. It says that uh, you will be that, that it says it talks about how the Messiah will be a contemporary with the temple. It talks about the temple and talks about the Messiah, and then and so we have to say that the Messiah will be around the temple. Well, we know that the temple was rebuilt in around 400 B.C. and then the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Right? Is there a temple sitting in Jerusalem now? Not really. There's a wall, but there is no, it's no working temple, and so there is no temple. So there was this 400-year period when the Christ could have been born in Jerusalem. And it says um, that William W. Stone and Robert C. Newman wrote a book called Science Speaks. The book was based upon the science of probability vouching for, uh, vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. It's, it sets out the odds of one man in history fulfilling only eight of the 60 major prophecies and 270 ramifications of the life of Christ. If you look, if you're into that kind of thing, there's lots of websites that talk about, um, and just books that say that there's lots of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. 
how he would die. It says his hands and feet would be pierced, where he would live, what he would do, what he would say, being fulfilled in Christ. And and these guys argue that, that for one man to fulfill all these prophecies would be like uh, one, I mean, 10 to the 17th power. Not one in a thousand, not one in a million, but one uh, 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. What does that number even mean? I don't even know. So they say that it's like this. It's like um, if you have a whole bunch of silver dollars and you paint one of those silver dollars red. And then you take all those silver dollars, which just happens to be enough silver dollars to fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Have you have you driven through Texas? It's, it takes like a day just to go across. And so you fill the entire state of Texas uh, two feet deep full of silver dollars. One of those silver dollars somewhere in Texas is painted red. And, and a man would, would uh, fall out of a plane randomly blindfolded, go down, dig through the pile of silver dollars, and just happen to find that one red silver dollar. That is the same um, probability of one person fulfilling all those prophecies. But we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus, that his mother claimed to be a virgin. I believe she was. And we know that Jesus, was, his hands and feet were pierced. We know that Jesus was around when the temple was around. All these verses being fulfilled, prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. Isn't that cool? That's really cool to me. I think it's just amazing. Um, <clears throat> let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about Peter for just a second. I talked about Peter earlier. Um, that Peter denied Christ and then died by crucifixion. There's the story of him denying Christ. And this story, um, in the four Gospels, the story seems to be a little different each time it's told. I would consider it a Bible conundrum. If you've ever seen this book and someone holding this book, you should immediately think that they are a Bible nerd. Because this blue book, although it just looks like any blue book, is about $200. It costs, it, it, I don't know why some textbooks cost a lot. Are you mad that textbooks cost a lot? Me too. And I, when I was in seminary, I had to buy this one. And I, I brought it up to the cash register. And they were like, 200, 200 and something dollars. And I was like, what? For this? And they, they were like, yeah, for this. And what it is, I don't even know why it costs so much. Um, but what it is, it's called the synopsis of the four Gospels. And so if you could see up here, they've, they, all it is is four, four lines. And then each of the Gospels and all the stories in those Gospels lined up. And so it's just a way of organizing the Gospels. And then on this side, of course, is the Greek because, because there's the Greek on the other side. And so if you're looking at the story of Peter denying Christ, you could line up the whole story in all four, uh, on one page in all four columns. Pretty cool. I don't know that it's worth 200 bucks, but I bought it because I'm a Bible nerd. And so I'm reading through, and if you look at cr- Peter denying Christ, you'll see some interesting things. Matthew, Luke, and John just to begin with, say that Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. For some weird reason, in Mark, Jesus says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Have any of you ever seen that before? And you might look at that and just say, no big deal. And it is, no big deal. I mean, if the rooster crowed twice, he obviously crowed once, right? (laughs) That's how I think about it. Some of you will get that later. (coughs) But in this passage, there's different nuances to who Peter denies Christ to. And if you look at it and you have it all mapped out like this or you do it on your own, you'll be a little confused. And someone jokingly said 
that if you read the Bible extremely literally, then Peter denies Christ 12 different times because each nuance, that each time he denies Christ is a little different. Let me, let me give you an example. In Matthew, he, Peter denies Christ to a maid, and then it says to another maid, and then he denies Christ to a group. In Mark, he denies Christ to a maid, and then the same maid, and then to a group. In Luke, he denies Christ first to, the ma- first to a maid, then to a man, and then to another man. In, in the book of John, he denies Christ first to the maid. That, that seems to be pretty clear to the all four. And then to a group, and then to one man. And so it seems like, you're like, what? It seems a little different every, every time the story's told. What the heck? And then you get into when these events happen. And, and you'll have to do some mathematical time um, juggling around to say, like, well, would you deny Christ here? Here it says it's the 12th hour. Here it says an hour passed. When did you deny Christ? What is going on with the time thing and in, in the order of events there? It's too hard to figure out. It seems like some inconsistencies. But ladies and gentlemen, the point of the story of Peter denying Christ isn't about these details. If you think about it, the Bible is an ancient book. Does anyone know when the clock was invented? seems like to me that the Chinese always invent things like a billion years before the Western world, but then no one gives them credit. Um, <laughs> so once again, we won't give the Chinese credit, but we'll say uh, that the first mechanical clock was invented in 792. When was Jesus walking around? Well, you could say a lot before that, maybe 33 AD, if you just wanted to throw out a guess. When was the pocket watch invented? It wasn't until 1524, right? Of course you knew that, of course. The wristwatch wasn't even invented until after that. So we're talking about people. When was science invented, like science we know today? Well, some people would argue that Francis Bacon kind of invented science and the scientific method as we know today in the 1500s. That's a, a thousand years, at least 1,500 years before, um, after Christ came. And so we're talking about an ancient culture, a culture that didn't even carry clocks. They were guessing when they said the time. They were looking at the sun to tell you what time it was. Can you imagine? I mean, when Sunday school ends? Well, when the sun is half over Pike's Peak. That's silly. We have clocks now. This, the point of the story uh, of Peter denying Christ is to say that Peter denied Christ three times, but then was redeemed. In this book right here, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says that Peter um, was crucified hanging upside down because he felt it unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. So the, the, this man, Peter, that denied Christ three times was then the same man that said, I'll never deny you again, even if that means being crucified and not even being afraid to be crucified like Christ, but upside down. That's the main point of the story. And then in John, the last passage of the book of John says that Peter that Peter's given a chance to redeem himself. And I want to read this passage for you, and then we'll be done. But first, there's one thing before I read this passage that we have to do. And some of you know what this is, and some of you don't. It depends upon whether you came on time or not. You remember that? So if you came in here on time, because I want to, because remember when we started, there was like hardly anyone in here. And now that we're ending, there's lots of people in here. And so if you came in on time, there was a project on time. And it says there's there's... I know some of you get excited about this, but I have a $25 gift certificate to Starbucks. That's good enough for a muffin and a coffee for the person, 
It's true. That's about all you can get. Um, but anyways, I want to bribe you to get you to show up on time because we got a lot of great stuff to talk about all this month. And so the winner is, and you'll come afterwards and get this. <clears throat> May Dawn. So here's your, here's your gift certificate. I can just show it to you. Yeah, almost. So come on time to the Mill Sunday School. I might just bribe you with that some other time again. But let's get, I just want to read this passage, then we'll be done. And this passage is, is a passage in uh, John 21. We're going to start reading in 15 and just read these few words here. But it's a passage about Peter and a few of the disciples fishing all night long in a boat after Jesus had died and then been raised from the dead. And, and Jesus appears to them on the shore. Peter gets excited and just jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore to meet Jesus. And then later on, they're having breakfast. They're having fish. They're eating uh, fish over a campfire. Have any of you ever eaten fish over a campfire? It's pretty fun. I remember uh, camping. I used to go camping a ton uh, a couple summers ago. And uh, I was eating some fish over a campfire talking about this exact passage. And it was, it was with a buddy of mine named Ben Couch. And a lot of you know that he died about a year ago in a motorcycle accident in Nepal, serving as a missionary. His life is just amazing. But we were eating some trout, some raw trout on a stick, and we were cooking it over the fire, talking about this passage. And I think, just think it's so cool that, that the Gospels would include a story about Peter denying Christ. And who cares if the time might be a little off? They didn't have watches back then. Who cares like what the order exactly was? You know that in the court of law, that, that the story would still stand up. It doesn't matter if your details are a little off. You still saw this person do something to this person, you know, and that your details are a little off. It's, it's, it's okay. And so this is the passage that brings it all home. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? I guess talking about the fish. Yes, Lord, he said, I know that I, I, I you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time he said to, to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, you, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. And, and where you went, you, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. Someone else will lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this, indicating the kind of death by which Peter would be glorified. Then he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. God, we just open up our minds and our hearts and our souls to your word, your scripture that is, that is life breathed, that we can know who you are through the Bible. God, would you just encourage us with that fact? Would you enlighten us with your word? Would you help us see through some mysteries, some conundrums, some difficulties, so that you might be glorified? Would you use this month of Sunday school to just show us that your difficulties, your conundrums, still mean that you are a one true and holy God and that your word remains strong in our foundation? And we love you and we praise you here this morning. And everybody said, amen.